DC Public Library Podcast is made possible in part by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and is a production of the labs at DC Public Library. You're listening to DC Public Library Podcast, recorded from the lab's recording studio in the historic, modernized Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in downtown Washington, DC. This is an episode of All Things Creative. Hello, I'm your host, Natalie Campbell, and this is the second in a series of conversations about designing for a just DC. For context, we're here because DC Public Library and the Goethe Institute are supporting six designers and artists through a program called Public Interest Design Lab. And the fellows in this program have been developing work since May in conversation with a variety of guest experts and mentors. So in today's conversation, we have Jen Lowe, a DC-based integrative designer, educator, and landscape architect. She is a board director at the Urban Studio and deputy director of the 1882 Foundation, where she leads a collection of placekeeping initiatives in DC's Chinatown. Um, And she is a fellow in the program, as is Anna McCorvey, a D.C.-based architect and city planner, founder of the River East Design Center, a community design center with a mission to empower underserved communities to shape their own environments. And in conversation with our two fellows, we have a special guest, Rostin Wu, a designer, writer, and educator living in Los Angeles. He produces civic-scale artworks and works as a collaborator and a consultant to a variety of grassroots and nonprofit organizations. He is co-founder and former executive director of the Center for Urban Pedagogy, CUP, a New York-based nonprofit organization dedicated to using art and design to foster civic participation. He's winner of the 2016 National Design Award for Institutional Achievement. And his book, Street Value, about race and retail urban development, was published by the Princeton Architectural Press in 2010. And he teaches art and design at the California Institute of Arts, Pomona College, and Art Center College of Design. And he's lectured nationally and internationally. And we are here today to talk about reimagining civic engagement and participatory planning. And so I thought before we started talking about each of your work and what you do, I would start us off with a warm-up activity where I want us to paint a picture together of a textbook example of designing the built environment without real public involvement and input. Um, If you're looking at a built project, what are some of the features you recognize as designers when a project has been built? What happens? What are some of the symptoms? What are some of the evidence that you can see and hear and feel? I'll start off. You know, I, I would definitely say from, from an aesthetic standpoint, um, you know, as an architect, we are constantly designing with, you know, with the context, um, designing in a way that, you know, complements the existing context. It may not, you know, completely match what's there, but it's, it complements the existing context. So from, um, from an aesthetic standpoint, you know, it'll, it can, it's pretty easy to kind of look at a, a building and say, you know, I just don't believe that the community got together and said, yeah, let's do that. Um, from, you know, outside outside of the actual look of the building, I would say just my own personal experiences. Um, you know, how much talk is there around the project? Did anybody know that the project was going on? That happens uh, a lot where I am. Uh, people just kind of being completely unaware of something happening. And it seems like it just kind of pops up. Um, that's another way to, to, deter- to understand and to determine whether or not the community was actively um, engaged and involved in the process. I could jump in. I mean, I guess I might take the conver- the question in a slightly different direction, I guess. You know, here in LA, in 
maybe I'll say in particular, I don't want to hate on LA in particular exactly, but, <laughs> but I will say, you know, pretty much like any, any public streetscape looks, it looks and is pretty much designed with very little to no meaningful public <laughs> engagement or involvement. So it just looks like, you know, it looks like America. Like I think most of American streets kind of look like, look like that. Um, but I go even one step further, you know, I think is that, you know, even, and I think this is an interesting paradox is that, you know, it's not, it's not as though, even though there's no public involvement that there's that, that after it's been built, there's no public meaningful interaction with it. I think people in America are really good at taking over spaces that were not designed for them whatsoever and making them meaningful and turning them into places that are, that are real places to them. But I'd say our planning environment and kind of like, kind of like policing environment, you know, is actively kind of like anti, <laughs> anti-human involvement, you know, so even where people have kind of gone and customized a place or made it something that is, is kind of like works for them, you know, here in LA, you see sort of just constant, frequent kind of like resets of these generic public spaces where the kind of human modifications are kind of like removed and cleared out over and over again. So, so to me, it's almost like not, it's not even like failing to involve people, but it's sort of like actively, I think we have a kind of a general planning and policing regime that, that is um, like straight up hostile to, to human, <laughs> human scale interventions in the built environment. Yeah. And I'll build on both what Anna and Rostin say, because I um, definitely agree. And I think it's, there's definitely evidence in all aspects that demonstrate there hasn't been in human input, <laughs> essentially, like real human considerations in respects to the spaces in between buildings. Being a landscape architect, I always think of those types of spaces when I think about design um, and a lack of, you know, understanding about human scale and our relationship to spaces around us. Um, and, you know, what is our proximity to the building? How do we relate to like, you know, that tree or shade or that plant? Um, how, you know, where we are up against different bicycles or cars, um, all those things that I think you, uh, are, are absent in spaces that, you know, can draw a line on a piece of paper and then uh, build it from there, from a plan view. Um, and then the other aspect of time, I think as humans, we think about like the relationship, like across like the entire day and how we move through spaces and how we see and how we adapt and maybe want like spaces to sort of grow and evolve over multiple years too. Um, so I think of those, like those spaces that are static, that are really singular and have a very specific pointed perspective of what it wants to be and really has sort of no, you know, momentum or yeah, um, dynamic nature <laughs> as being spaces that are evidence of people not being able to bring sort of their perspectives and yeah, like um, texture to to those places. And I think it's interesting that maybe what Rostin and, and 
is saying, and maybe, and maybe you too, Jen is, is also that people are just so used to being not considered that it's actually not like you can actively see, (laughs) you can actively see people not caring for a space. For example, like vandalism could be sign of claiming a space and trying to restory it versus like a sign that you're like not interested or apathy. Oh, well, I mean, just to kind of get Go further with that. I think that's a great example. And then here in LA, and I think everywhere also, <laughs> yeah, I think it kind of almost gets down to the level like who gets to be considered human and like whose kinds of, whose spaces are for, right? I mean, in, in LA, you know, we're in the midst of just, just uh, widespread, rampant like sweeps of, of encampments, um, you know, and there's like a massive unhoused population. Um, and the streets are, you know, and it's, it's very explicit that, that like the modifications that people have made in order to live are just cleared out on a, you know, monthly, if not weekly basis. Um, you know, whole parks have been cleared and then fenced off so that no one can use them because, um, our city is so hostile to the idea that someone who really needs that space to sleep can't use them. You know, so I think, you know, even at, you know, at that level, there's sort of a sense of like, you know, one person's idea of like a habitable modification is another's idea of like disorder and like something that has to be removed, you know? And I think that's sort of like where it comes down to. And you can kind of like take that example all the way mm-hmm. <laughs> up the scale of like, you know, who gets to be human in our society. You know, there's so many examples of like, you know, anti-black, you know, urban design, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's very rampant. And it's not like, I don't mean to say like, it's a problem of urban design. It's a problem of our society generally that's reflected in urban design. Does anyone yeah. have anything oh. else to add? Yeah, Jen. No, that's a really good point. I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of like, what are our de- like definitions and like who gets to define like what belonging is to a space too. And safety, uh, in particular, safety these days. Um, you know, whose safety are we? You know, actually focusing on in any given space too that we can spend time in. I thought of you know Fulton Mall in downtown Brooklyn, um, which is what that book Street Values sort of about. You know, and it's sort of this double story where on the one hand you have like this urban design going back, you know, almost to the beginning of the 20th century, but certainly by mid-century there's like a really explicitly anti-poor and anti-black kind of planning philosophy of like, we have to like, we have to pedestrianize a street because like too many black people are shopping there. That's like explicitly what the planners, you know, like Mayor Lindsay's urban design group said, like, that's like not like reading between the lines. That's like, that's why they did it. It's like, we need to make this into like a space that like white suburbans, suburban shoppers will feel comfortable being in. And so we're going to pedestrianize it. Um, and it's also the first business improvement district. So like these private policings that happen on that street, um, you know, so it's like both a really great casebook, you know, textbook study of like a very punitive urban design strategy, but it's also, you know, like one of the birthplaces of hip hop, you know, and like it absolutely failed as like, sort of like whatever they were trying to do with the urban design of that space, it did not work. That's not like what happened to that street. And that's not like what that street became, you know, internationally known for. So I think there is this kind of like this, I don't know, I think there's sort of two stories of sort of like on the one hand, you have some very poor uh, decisions and frames of reference that tend to be coming from like top down (laughs) planning structures. But that's not the end of the story of like what happens on the street or what I think should be called or considered urban design. Um, You know, there's so many other things and ways that people populate space 
and use it that, you know, completely recodes and reorients the way we see that space and like what it means to people, which is at least as important as like the physical structures that are there. And like one little coda to that is like, you know, I, I started that whole that project because the way that people like New York times would write about that space constantly was just so um, offensive. You know, people were, there was like a moment when there's historic preservationists were really concerned about it. And like the head of the landmarks commission, you know, gave a quote to the times that was like, in order to see anything of value in Fulton mall, you have to look up to see these like cast iron, like structures, you know, and it's like so dismissive and offensive to like, you know, like literally every, everything and everybody on the street but it didn't even occur to them that that was like something they should like code or say something somehow differently. I think there can be just like this, um, you know, those frames of reference are, are so extreme in the way what people can read out of a, out of a built space. That's really helpful in terms of, you know, each of the three of you have really different focuses and practices. And so just to kind of name the problem helps get, get into the weeds a little bit more uh, because we, we're really here because um, one thing Jen Lowe said about your work, Rostin, is that Rostin's work was an avenue that expanded my understanding of a designer's role in interrogating systems and processes that are in the way of better getting to know and understand communities and better addressing their wants and needs. And yeah, just give us a few examples from your your history and and we'll tie it to what the fellows are working on now. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I thought maybe one kind of project that would just help people get a sense of like where I'm coming from is like an old project I did with this organization, the center for urban pedagogy. It's based in Brooklyn. I co-founded it like almost 20 years ago and ran it for a while. Um, but so one project I think cup was, is known for is a, a collaboration we did with an organization called the street vendor project. Um, and it's, I think a good example of like a very straightforward thing that like cup, and myself, you know, try to, you know, something we try to do with design, which is just sort of make the world kind of legible. Um, and by making it legible, like change the ways people can maybe interact with it or uh, how, the kind of access they have to power or um, in, a, in a sense, access to the law. So basically the, the problem was that street vendors are governed by these like three administrative codes that are spread out in these really obscure um, documents that are really hard to interpret. So like, they'll be like really, really minute, like, you know, in the borough of Manhattan, you can bend from East 40th to East 57th street, Monday through Friday from eight to 6 PM, you know, like th that level of granular detail of like what you can, can't do. Um, and vendors don't know those regulations, you know, so even if you had like a law degree and you had fluent English skills and you had like a lot of free time, you would just still not be able to really have access to that, to knowing what your rights are and what your responsibilities are as a vendor. So, um, and that poses a lot of like really specific problems for street vendors on the ground. Um, if like a cop or somebody says like, you need to move, like they basically kind of have to accept that that's the case because they don't have a way to argue their case um, with someone who's telling them to move. And there's a lot of reasons why someone who's like paying rent on a storefront might just be like, I don't want a vendor near me. I'm just gonna like harass them until they go. Um, or a cop could just be being a cop and <laughs> say they have to go. Um, and so basically we just took that, all that language, um, worked with um, a designer named Candy Chang um, and uh, a fellow from Yale Law School and tried to boil it down into like a, a totally visual guide, like sort of like an Ikea manual of street vending regulations. Then printed that in an edition of 10,000, distributed them through the street vendor projects network 
Um, and then eventually like the city caught on, they said, this is, this is actually really useful. And then they started printing them. So like the department of consumer affairs printed another 10,000 and they would just give them out to people who were um, applying for a vending license. So that's like an example, I guess, of just like a really simple kind of design intervention that is essentially just like explanatory, I guess, but it has like kind of like a, a usefulness to my mind that's different than just being like, oh, I'm explaining this really well to you. It's like it becomes a tool that you then can use in an interaction with a police officer or with someone who's asking you to move um, to say, no, actually, like I have this kind of like official looking formatted guide um, and uh, and I, I know I can stay there. So it can change a power dynamic on, on the ground. Did, um, uh, can I ask, did street vendors come to you? How did the project originate? Yeah, so that was that came out of yeah this guy Sean Bozinski who was a former street vendor and then got a law degree and then started this organization the Street Vendor Project. Um, we had like run a panel discussion with him and I think it was maybe Amy Franceschini from Future Farmers. Like we just used to run a, t- a series of talks of like different people doing interesting projects, and so he met us through that and then he stayed in touch and then. Um, and then we had this idea that we wanted to make this series of publications where we partnered a advocate and a designer together and then gave them each grants to work together. Da, da, da. And so that became kind of one of the pilots of that process. Like that was kind of like, I think we had sort of like an open call competition, but we sort of, that was sort of our ringer where we were like, you guys need to apply because this is a really good project. Um, and, uh, and that was one of the first ones that we did in that, in that format. And I guess I, I partly bring that up because, you know, both that's like a, a method of like what to do, but it's also a way of, of working that sort of it became very constitutional for Cup and for myself of like building like a little team where you have like people with very different backgrounds and skill sets, like someone who's just like has lived experience, someone who's like a, you know, has a law degree, someone who has like, you know, a design background and seeing what they come up with, giving them resources and time and, you know, and you know, direction and help, um, but sort of building kind of a team that then makes the project and sort of like, and having that team meet each other on equal ground. So it's not like, here's like a designer who's like doing good in the world and like, pro- you know, providing a service for some other organizations like that. It's more like you're both getting grants, you're both like having valuable skills, and you're going to work together. Um, and, um, and that became kind of like a really meaningful structure for making stuff. Um, both because it makes interesting projects, but also because, and this kind of goes back to your question, like it started to build like a really meaningful network of like people who knew each other and could care about stuff. So, you know, starting to think about the making of a project as like, you know, it's like the things that it spits out are cool, but like the, the process and like the making of it is actually just as valuable. Um, you know, and you actually need to make something in order to have that experience, but like the experience is, is its own thing. So yeah, that's that's an example of a project, and we use that you know in so many different ways to talk about all kinds of stuff, ranging from like how does public housing work to you know where does my garbage go when I throw it away, or where does my water come from, or how do you understand what affordable housing is when there's all these like obscure formulas from HUD. You know, it became this very useful kind of general generalizable format. So maybe I'll just talk about like one other thing pretty quick, which is I do a lot of stuff that I sort of think of as being in like the what I call like the interpretive layer. So this is a diagram that Matthew Coolidge from the Center for Land Use Interpretation first kind of like told me or whatever, like I got it while he was talking, <laughs> but it's, it's one of those things where I'm curious that like he would be like, what are you talking about? I don't, I never said that, but 
it meant something to me. <laughs> um, but sort of you have like an observer and you have a landscape. And then in between that, there's like this interpretive layer. And that layer is like neither the observer or the landscape, but it's this like thing that helps you kind of like, you know, whatever you're able to read out of a landscape is kind of heavily flavored by everything that's in that kind of like window or film in between, right? So like that's, you know, you know like a national park or something like that, like, you know, that's like whatever, your knowledge of ecology and or the sign that's there. But, you know, like if you're in like a city street, you know, like I think it also, you know, and even if you're in a park, you know, it's also like race and gender and class and all these other things that are going to be basically like totally framing everything that you're able to read or understand out of the landscape. So I try to think about like a whole half of my work probably is kind of like working in that space of like, how do you kind of shift someone's interpretive layer? So like when they see a landscape, they're seeing something different than what they might see if they were just coming to it um, without this intervention. So example of that, um, I was asked by LA County a few years ago um, to make like a creative visioning tool for this neighborhood called Willowbrook that's in between Watts and Compton in LA County. Um, and many people have never been to Willowbrook. People in LA could, I've talked to or have no idea where it is, but almost everybody in the world knows like Watts and Compton, you know, and they, what they know about it is super, is super colored by like a whole media archive and history that is like, <laughs> you know, it's like turned up to 11. Like you, you can't like see Watts or Compton without seeing that whole media layer kind of overcoding everything that you're seeing, you know? And so like, you're thinking about Kendrick Lamar or boys in the hood or whatever, while you're going to those places. And, and, you know, to me, it's, it feels like it's really, um, it's a real problem for it in terms of people's ability to engage those places in a meaningful way if they don't have another kind of relationship to the place. So I was asked to make a creative visioning tool in Willowbrook. And as many of these projects kind of go, I think this is something that um, Anna, you sort of mentioned in your, in, in that first question, it's like, when I showed up, people were like, why are you here? Why did no one tell us about this meeting? Like, and like, what is going on? And like, can we not do this place? <laughs> you know, like people were just like not excited to have me come and do a creative visioning exercise with them. And for like a really good reason, like um, as I started to do more research, it's like there's been so many different kinds of like weird drop-in plans for Watts and Compton and Willowbrook. And just the prior year before I'd come, there was like a whole community planning exercise that had been done by Gensler as like a pro bono thing. And so people in the neighborhood were just like, just like, just beyond apathetic and just tired of like being like planned for. Um, and they had like a real fatigue about it. That was like sort of beyond even wanting to resist it. They were just sort of like, okay, like do whatever you're going to do. And we'll like show up and like put our post post-it notes on the thing. And like, just, you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> they were just tired of it. They were over it. Um, that was just super depressing to be in that situation and be like, I don't want to be like one of these people who just comes and like does like a, performs participation and like collects a check and like leaves and like, is like, okay, like, you know, whatever. And that's, you know, that is like really like a whole world, you know, and it's been a whole world for, you know, in the sixties, they talked about like poverty pimps, like, you know, people who would come to a neighborhood that they thought of as like, you know, poor underserved or whatever, and like figure out some way to like get their cut on the, you know, helping of that community. So anyway, all that's to say that there is a pretty long process of soul searching and figuring out like what I could possibly do with like this money um, that wouldn't feel like really creepy. Um, and where it sort of landed was um, 
basically making like a big home and garden tour. Um, you know, after I spent a lot of time in the neighborhood, it sort of became clear to me that like people in the neighborhood felt very unseen by the county and they actually had a lot of really awesome stuff going on that they'd initiated, but like it was not really part of, um, the county's vision for them. You know, like, I think it was one of those situations where like all of the plans that were produced for them were really about like, you know, we're like deficit based of like, how do we fix this broken place instead of like, what is actually here? Um, so I just tried to make this project that was like sort of took this idea of like visioning and so instead of it being about like what should be there, it's like, can you just make a tool to help people see what is already there became sort of the mantra of the project. Um, and so it's basically like became a home and garden tour and then like a coffee table book kind of of that tour with like um, bilingual, like with oral histories kind of inserted and just turning up all these different stories of people who had these amazing, beautiful gardens or beautiful homes or like this couple who like, you know, he had an exotic cactus collection and she added an exotic turtle collection and they have this like paradise in their backyard that's just like turtles and cactuses and like a self-taught stonemason and who built like this fountain out of the rubble from the 105 freeway construction and like all volunteer drug training clubs and a woman who is like a registered nurse with like a model railroad like universe in her backyard and just like you know all these amazing things that were happening in in the neighborhood in the backyard that were not i think in any meaningful way kind of recognized as like the kind of like beautiful things that they were and so that project became about sort of trying to make, um, yeah, make those things known. Um, and I feel like that's like, if there's one part of my work that's about sort of making something like legible and like, how does this work? There's another part where it's like, can you actually even just make something that helps someone see something that is otherwise feels very invisible? Um, so maybe I'll stop there. I think that kind of gives like some ideas of like what I'm about. Um, and then we can get into these other Jen, tell us a little bit more about your project. Yeah. So my project I've been working on since the summer of 2019, it's called Dear Chinatown DC. And it began as a partnership with the 1882 Foundation. Um, And they're a a public history, public education um, nonprofit uh, located in DC's Chinatown. It's been running for about 11 years at this point, Um, just a small group of um, uh, Chinese American um, uh, former civil servants that retired um, who were on their way to getting, uh, I think it was what is it called a federal apology for the exclusion laws. And that's why they called themselves that. And it turned into something, you know, it evolved something much larger <laughs> over time. But the origins was, um, and the project was um, a a pop-up. It was a making and sharing station that centered around love letter posters. And I wanted people to write love letters about Chinatown, um, people who were connected, longtime residents, former residents, people who were living in the neighborhood. Um, Because I wanted to understand if there was a different perception and story about this neighborhood that wasn't sort of in the 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 more dominant sort of main narrative, um, and in DC in particular, there's been you know decade after decade a, a, an article in Washington Post about this dying Chinatown, a shrinking Chinatown. Um, there's a particular um, affordable housing building called the Wallach House. They go in and interview a tenant uh, there. 
saying, you know, everything's lost, it's going away. And I was, I think, <laughs> fundamentally, I think the, the community was kind of just tired of that. Like, how do you continue to perpetuate a story about like, like erasure when they're still there <laughs> over like the past 30 years of talking about that? Um, so Dear Chinatown was a moment to see like, you know, what are these narratives? What are the perspectives? How do people really sort of love and have affections for their neighborhood? Um, and it ended up being, there's so many facets to this project. It's a participatory art project. Um, it's a public history project, but like my like sort of main affinity for it was to really understand sort of like what were the mechanisms to really understanding a community, um, and their different perspectives and what they value. And I really wanted to push sort of like those observations and reflections onto city planners on to, you know, like other sort of like government officials to see what it would take to, you know, what, what really like meaningful engagement looks like. What are the ways in which we need to be accessible and how we can we have conversations and build relationships with people who are, you know, very much a part of built environment work. But as you said, Rostin, don't look like built environment professionals. <laughs> like they, they're creating and supporting the fabric of these neighborhoods um, and having people come together um, in so many different ways, you know, that are creating sort of cultural practice um, and social spaces. Um, so that was the heart of, you know, it, it's a very small project that essentially tries to build off what 1882 was doing and is doing in a very small way that's sort of showcased and it is in a different sort of container and vessel. So it started off as like a series of workshops and having, you know, engagements where people were making love letters and having conversations and sharing out. And then it evolved into taking all of these conversations I was having and interviews and the love letters and making a participatory map um, to show also um, sort of the, the synthesis um, and a visual indicator of all these stories and memories and experiences which is also helping a little bit in some ways helped Ted, who's the executive director at the 1882 Foundation, be able to like sort of able to articulate and for him to sort of communicate what sort of he wanted to, you know, drive his vision, which ultimately has been like um, sort of like cultural center around like this one remaining block in the neighborhood that still kind of has a still the similar textures and scale of, you know, Chinatown a few decades back. Um, and, you know, the center, you know, of that sort of, you know, cultural epicenter in that neighborhood right now is not at the gate. It's not at the Friendship Arch. <laughs> it's really shifted a little bit, you know, further, further east um, to where like the 1882 Foundation and some different other like um, merchants and the Chinese Benevolent Association and some other groups exist now. Um, so I'm, at, I'm a little bit in a nexus right now. There was a lot of work that I was doing with 1882 Foundation, but also they've been doing an incredible amount of work. Um, so if this continues to be an overlay and an aspect of the foundation's work, or if this, you know, has sort of, you know, arms and branches off into, you know, other spaces too, is sort of where I'm at at the moment. Um, given how strong and, you know, things have been going with, with 1882 Foundation. Like your work was instrumental in them being able to achieve some larger foundation funding. And that's really exciting, you know. 
yeah, that was really <laughs> exciting. They re- they recently got um, a half a million dollars from the um, Humanities in Place um, program with the Mellon Foundation um, to build their story center. So they're going to be able to expand and renovate their little basement office in the row house that they occupy um, to actually have their own space to hold their talk story events and programs. Mm-hmm. Um, which is awesome because they've been shoved in a basement of a you know, commercial <laughs> building. I'm curious about your challenges and where you're at right now. And you're kind of speaking to that a little bit. Yeah, it's forever work. And I know that. And like in, the topic area is like close to my heart and is something, you know, as an Asian American woman um, that I will always have affinity for in terms of like subject matter. Um, but the direction I also see as a professional in my work is, um, you know, is a process oriented question. Like my like main drive in life is that, you know, DC and other cities simply scrap, you know, their ch- current checklist of how they do things and how is there sort of way forward that we demonstrate because we have a lot of <laughs> demonstrated proof points of process and outcomes that there's a different way to be doing things and it's not prescribed. Um, and, you know, these, there are different forms of collaboration and like what Rawson mentioned, like, you know, your design teams don't have to just be, you know, a bunch of like urban planners at the table. Like how do we design for something, different systems and different processes? Um and that's sort of where I'm at right now. But it, it, it's weird because it's like, it, it, when I think about it and when I talk about it, it's process. And it's hard for me, it's hard to like make the case for people about process <laughs> when it's like a long game thing, right? It's like forever work and the things that I'm intrinsically trying to do in sort of these smaller little instances are fed into a system that might take like, you know, well beyond when I'm gone to like manifest in anything that anyone looks at to see something tangible (laughs) because like Chinatown people know as a place which is easy (laughs) and people get it when I'm working in the vehicles of art and design and being able to create these products but I also want people to see sort of the long-term sort of like end game but I don't think I've articulated that well and that's across multiple spaces that I'm in which I think that is my driving motivation but that's not like what outwardly is the outwardly facing thing when people look at me or can like, you know, name the thing that I do. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear, and you know, Rosting your thoughts on this shift. One way to think about it, or one, I'm curious if this resonates as a way to think about it, but are there like outcomes, like things that like get spun off from this kind of working that you're hoping to see that to you, if they happened, you would be like, okay, this is, this is a good sign. Like this is working. I am curious about, I don't actually have a very good mental image, Jen, of like the Dear Chinatown project. Is it like, are you, are these posters, are they in public places? And like, and I guess for both of you, like, where do you imagine that like the things, once you've done the activities, like where do they circulate? Where do they go next? Who else do you need to have see them? And like, what, what are they going to be thinking when they see them? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, All of my materials are digital right now. So with the pandemic, everything became, so it's all on the line primarily. And that was an instance, but my ultimate outcome is, um, is visibility 
it's understanding there's more options and opportunities about sort of a future vision for the neighborhood that doesn't necessarily only entail like a tourism centered objective. So I'm still trying to keep very tight to being able to drive and sustain like a vision that, you know, um, you can, you know, you can drive urban developments and you can draw, drive, you know, change to neighborhoods that are community centered. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of opportunity um, to do that. Um, and so just expanding the notions of preservation is not something static too. Um, yeah. I want to add to your work, Jen, mm-hmm. just that Jen partners mm-hmm. in such meaningful ways with other mm-hmm. entities that, that also you, like, so you partner with a thing called the humanities truck at American university, which shows up as this kind of mobile museum and they record oral histories. And so one thing that I do think that has been exciting with the dear Chinatown project is you, you can, you surface these like mini exhibitions of the, you know, some of the most lively and rich cultural production out of Chinatown you know, the radio program and the graphic design, you know, recently outside the MLK library, she brought a a graphic designer who made a poster for AAP Heritage Month and let people meet the designer and like make their own versions of posters. I want, I mean, I want to give you a shout out for the beautiful material presentations that you've been able to do, but also name that it's sort of a, you know, there are limitations to what we can do in the pop-up form also. Yeah, thanks, Natalie. Say, I'm always, I've, I'm always thinking about, you know, especially since I've been filling out like a lot of grant applications, and they always want to know, like, what's the result that you're going to get? But it makes me think, what is the result of, you know, the mobile kiosk, which, you know, in my mind, is this exciting thing that you see on the corner. It's like, I don't know what that is, but I want to go up to it and engage with it because there's like, you know, some great music you know, coming out of it or they got candy over there or whatever the, whatever the situation is. Um, I, I, I would like for it ultimately to give people the tools that they may be lacking in so that they can show up to, in these spaces that they wouldn't have shown up in before because maybe they felt like they just didn't have the vocabulary. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't have the information. But now they have it. Now they can show up. Um, and maybe they're not just showing up to some established thing. Maybe they're making their own little thing over here and talking. Um, I'm going to have to look up this wing on woe situation. But I mean, I see spaces like that being created. Like we're going to make our own group over here because this is where we're always hanging out. We know what kind of issues that we want um, to discuss and that we want to address. And now we have you know, some tools to kind of help to help us with this process. So to the grant people out there, I don't know how I measure that, but that's the, (laughs) that's the goal. Um, And I feel like it could, you know, that can continue on with design center work. Um, And I'd also like for other organizations to come to contact us and say, hey, can we use the kiosk? Because we want to share some information on whatever. and so it's to build some build some partnerships as well. Yeah, I think that idea of the network, Rossing, you were talking about what, you know, kind of as the method that CUP really worked out. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think to me, like, I like, you know, and that's something that's maybe a little bit um, that I miss about CUP is that, like, there is that kind of... Um, 
you know, I don't know. There's sort of like maybe three timelines that I feel like I, I work on and like where you have sort of like, you need to like have like an immediate win maybe on some projects where you're like, okay, like we're trying to change this one policy or stop this one horrible thing from happening. And so we're just going to like make a thing that is like designed for like that timeline. It's like one year out or two years out or something like that. And you have a pretty immediate like feedback of like, yeah, we, <laughs> we did it or we didn't. You know, and then I feel like to me, there's then that kind of like second timeline, which I maybe don't have as much now without sort of being in an organization where it's like when you when you have those like smaller project wins or even the losses, you still kind of build power and you build that connection where you're like, okay, well, like we did this one project and now there's like 100 more people know each other. And so the next project's that much easier to do. And like people know what you're up to and like you just build like kind of le- legitimacy or presence or meaning in that space which is really a wonderful thing when you feel like you can be like focused on these like immediate goals. And then you look up like three years later and you're like, Oh, now like we have like, there's like a hundred other people who want to be in the mix or whatever, which is really exciting, you know? And like when, now that I mostly work sort of like as myself with like a pretty small shop, like, you know, one and a half, like assistant sometimes, but like, you know, I don't have like an organization. I don't really see that kind of like, you know, I have a personal network, but it doesn't feel the same as having like, that organizational kind of like thing. But then there is still like that, like third horizon, which I feel like is to me like the main, not the main, but it's an important one. And I think it's one that I feel like it's easy to devalue. It's sort of like the big kind of cultural shift stuff, you know, where you, where it's like, well, you know, like, and this became really clear to me when like my first job, like after college, I was working for an affordable housing developer. And I kind of like, I'd been like really into like art and like, you know, whatever, like theory and stuff like that in college. And then I was like, you know what, that was like really interesting and fun, but like now I need to do something real. And so I'm going to work for this affordable housing developer and like build, you know, like try to work on building housing for formerly homeless people. And like, that's like something concrete and real. Um, And then you get out there and you're trying to like make that happen. (laughs) And you're like, Oh, like, you know, like, we can only build like 100 units at a time. And that feels like totally insufficient to like the need. And you're kind of like, like in order for this to really change, like we need to change like the culture, you know, like people need to be thinking, you know, like you need to like work so hard just to convince people not to protest this fucking 100 units housing or whatever. And you sort of see like, okay, there's this other timeline of like actual, like changing, like what people want and the world that we desire and all those things. And like, that's what culture is. And like, that's actually really important and valuable work that needs to happen. It doesn't, it's not, doesn't just automatically happen. And so I do sort of think like, sometimes I'm working on a project where I'm like, I'm making like an audio tour about like native plants. How is this useful? (laughs) You know, but then, you know, but it's also like, well, this is about this larger cultural project. And it's like in concert with like a thousand other similar projects or whatever other, other kinds of work that is in that same sphere. And, you know, I have seen, you know, I don't mean to be like old man about it, but like I've, I've been around long enough that I've seen like things like people's opinions about stuff change that I never thought would change, you know, like in the last, you know, when I like 20 years ago, like talking about public housing seemed like a total non-starter for like most people, at least in like a progressive like development community, they'd be like, oh, well that failed. So like we're on to the next thing. And I feel like it seemed like a totally, you know, like I was being really like perverse, but like trying to like talk about it as like, we need to be going back to this. 
And that's really changed. You know, like, it's not like we're not there yet. We're not building it. But like that idea is no longer outlandish. You know, like the idea that we need to like, you know, like completely defund like whole departments of our government, like defunding like the police and refunding community services. You know, even like five years ago, I feel like that would have seemed like, you know, what are you talking about? And that's like a completely like legitimate, um, you know, it's not, again, like it's, we're not at the point where it's like winning yet. Like it's not winning policy, but it's like, it's there. And, you know, I don't know, to me, that's very heartening to see like, okay, these big, massive cultural sea changes are, have happened in my lifetime in many, many ways. So that work is valuable. Thank you for that note of optimism. (laughs) Jen or Anna, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I could, I could definitely reflect and I echo that. Thank you. The optimism and just the hope uh, that what we're doing, and Jen, you said it too, we may not see it in our, you know, in our work life, but that we're on the path. Uh, we're contributing and trying to make a, um, trying to make a future that we think, you know, would be worthwhile. Uh, and I mentioned to somebody once um, that, you know, if the design center, you know, my goal is really that people don't need the design center. Like, you know, people don't need it because everyone knows how to get their information. They know where to get their information from. They know how to participate. They're actively doing it. Um, There are systems, the systems that have kept them from doing it have been dismantled. Um, Instead, they've been replaced by systems that um, encourage them to participate. Um, So eventually, you know, maybe no one needs the design center, you know, ultimately, I think would be, would be great. Um, I would also say that I have found it really nice to have community around this work now, too. I felt like probably five years ago, I felt a little bit dire and like, my state of working in no traditional sort of practice and didn't know where to go, who to talk to, how to find resources. Um, And I felt like that community has grown significantly or now that I do know where to find that community. Um, So that has been sort of really awesome to be in in the space now. I really appreciate this conversation. I think it'll be really helpful for a lot of other people trying to find this type of work as well and understand it. Um, So thank you for your time. Thank you both. Um, I look forward to getting in touch. Thank you. Great to meet you. You just listened to All Things Creative on DC Public Library podcast, recorded from the lab's recording studio in the historic modernized Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Library in downtown Washington, D.C. You just tuned into DC Public Library podcast. Listen and subscribe at dclibrary.org/podcast or wherever podcasts are available. Send us your comments at DCPL on Twitter or follow us at DC Public Library on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for listening.